Hello all, happy Monday. Sarah Dietschy here for another episode of That Creative Life. Today, we have Simon Huck on. He is the co-founder of Judy, which is a emergency preparedness kit company. So we talk about that. And we also talk about his experience building a modern day PR company, Command Entertainment Group. So if you want to know the behind the scenes of building deals for huge celebrities with brands, so we're talking about literally the Kardashian level, stay tuned, excited for this one, Simon. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Last week, I took a pause. It was probably the first Monday in over six months that there was no that creative life. I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, after a couple errors in you know previous podcasts, I was like, okay, I got to sit down and figure out this setup to a T. I'm doing a lot of remote podcasts via Zoom and summer in studio. And I was just breaking down the equipment every single time. And it just results would vary. I wouldn't get the perfect podcast audio and video every single time because, you know, we, we've been revamping the YouTube channel. So I was like, this is enough. Everything has to be perfect. Everything has to stay set up. So I'm not just messing around with things, whether it's a Zoom recording or I'm filming a YouTube video. So if you guys care about gear at all, I will be having a new YouTube video out in the next month or so about the ultimate Zoom podcast equipment. Uh, and I'll, I'll go through everything that I'm doing right now because it's a lot. So thank you for the patience. That Creative Life is back every single Monday. We took one, one week of a break. So enjoy this episode with Simon Huck. I had always been fascinated by the U.S. and I had visited it growing up, but I really, it was so intimidating for me. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, which is the nation's capital, but it is... I mean, how can I describe it in a way that doesn't sound negative? I loved growing up in Ottawa, but it is a government town. Mm-hmm. It is, the pace is very slow. Is that where you have to speak French? Or yes. they hate you? Yeah. So yeah. it's 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 fully bilingual, mm-hmm. which means all the government services, everything you like learn you in school, English you have to know English and French. And I had always been obsessed with celebrities. So like when I was 12 years old, I had a subscription to People Magazine. Mm-hmm. I would watch the Grammys, the Oscars. Like I... Not that I wanted to be a celebrity, but I was fascinated by like managers and agents Mm -hmm. and like Jerry Maguire, like anything that was behind the scenes. I just thought this is so cool. Mm -hmm. And I would, um, you know, kind of dream of like what my life would be like if I could somehow get into entertainment. But being Canadian and growing up in Ottawa, like I just never thought that Mm -hmm. access would would happen. And I finished high school. I was in a dramatic arts high school. And then I went to Queens University, which is in a small town called Kingston. And I loved it. I was like, I leaned into college. Like people out there were like, I didn't like my college. I'm like, you didn't? (laughs) I was a wild child. I'm a college dropout. I I was one of those people that, this is the worst. What am I doing here? But I was studying electrical engineering. So it was kind of like no room for fun. Right. I knew the engineers at school. They were intense. Mm -hmm. They own that library. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was me. That Where was did you go to school? Uh, University of Texas at Arlington, so outside of Dallas. And it was one of those things where I, I love video, but you can't make a job from video. Oh, right. heck no. But then YouTube right. came about, and I, I, I found out what yeah, I like Yeah, clearly you found your way. We're in your <laughs> yeah, lavish yeah, office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Um, so then was doing my political science degree, which I can't, like, what was I even doing? <laughs> I didn't retain anything. And... I was working, I had this part-time job working at this like fancy clothing store 
And I had an Us Weekly and it arrived at the store and I was reading it like cover to cover like I always did. And there was this story about this woman named Lizzie Grubman and it called her a publicity princess. And at the time it was linking her to John Mayer. So it said publicity princess love. John Mayer. love. Oh my God. I love. play guitar. So he's like my hero. Oh no, he's beyond mm-hmm. like John, we want you on the podcast. <laughs> Hello, John. Hello, John. So it was this like kind of like salacious story about this like PR powerhouse Lizzie Grubman and John Mayer. And I was like, oh, well, this publicity princess is my calling. I went on to Google and I was like, how do I find this woman? I'm going to just call every single number and see if she will accept me as an unpaid intern. Because I had read that's the only way you can break into the world. So six weeks later and 5,000 phone calls, I managed to speak to her CFO at the time who was like, Yes, if you're in New York City, we'll meet with you, but we're not hiring. We'll have coffee with you, but like that is it. Called my parents, was like, I got a job interview at the biggest PR agency. Definitely a job. Definitely a job. Not an unpaid internship. And flew down on like air miles two days later, stayed with a friend of a friend of a friend, and went in. I wore like a full khaki suit and like pointy diesel shoes. I remember what I wore because I was at the time so proud of my style. In retrospect, like it was a mockery and I went in and like Lizzie didn't even spend any time with me at all. Like she was so distracted. Mm -hmm. The CFO was like, oh my God, you're here. You're like, he confused me with another person he must have spoken to on the phone. It was like a makalele of an interview. But as I was leaving her then business partner, this guy, Jonathan Chebin, who now is known as the food God. um, Oh, okay. So he was like what are you doing here? Who are you? Why are you so excited? Like I was an air traffic controller with my hands. I was out of control. I feel like that's a very New York thing though. So you're, you're already ahead of the game a little bit, but I was so Canadian. Like I was, I had never really, I'd been in New York once before and stayed in Times Square. Like everything impressed me. I was such a star fucker. Mm -hmm. I like couldn't believe I was even in the office of Lizzie Grubman. I had known who Jonathan was, but like, I didn't think, I didn't understand really their partnership. They had this, kind of um, joint partnership for the last year. And so he called me back like two hours later and was like, why don't you meet with Lizzie? And the next morning I got an email and they said that, you know, you're hired for an unpaid internship. Wow. I don't even know what that means. Like Mm -hmm. there was never a money exchange. I was basically getting coffee. So I moved (laughs) a month later and. So where was that first apartment? I stayed with my best friend who had recently moved to New York, kind of in the in that six-week period she yeah. had decided to move to New York. It was on 76 in Columbus, and okay. I stayed on her sofa for about two years. I love it. Wow. My first apartment was by Penn Station. It was bad. Oh, I, my God. Mice. Like, just so many mice. So and many mice. I also got broken into, like, three months into it. Stop. So... I was there on the phone with my mom being like, yeah, so blah, 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 you know, tiny apartment. I hear a big bang, look up, and there's just a person breaking into my apartment with a big thing of wood pushing against my glass. Oh. So I, and it, literally that same month, I got hit by a taxi on my electric skateboard. So I had a very genuine first year in New York. When did, what, when did you move? <laughs> like right after school? Gosh, right after so that was out? right after I dropped out. I got okay. a residency with Adobe that basically was like, here's a paycheck to pursue your passion projects for a year. I was Is Adobe the, the PDF thing? <laughs> among many other things. So okay. Premiere, Photoshop, Lightroom, oh my God. creative tools and marketing tools and PDFs and DocuSign. Oh my stuff God, the like vloggers that. out there just eye rolled big time to me. Like I can barely turn on Excel. Oh, we're going to clip that up. Yeah. They're going to love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, New York is so special. 
And sometimes you just got to sleep on couches and yeah. do what you got to do to get here. Yeah. It's like you never, I talk about this a lot now, like the person who had the balls to move to New York with like pennies to his name. Like, where is that person? Cause I'm now 36. It's 16 years <laughs> later and I'm scared of my own shadow and taking big chances, starting yeah. companies. It's like yeah. really fucking scary. Mm -hmm. And I look back and I'm like, who was that 20 year old who was so fearless? Like, I don't ever remember being scared. I mean, I was intimidated, but I wasn't scared. I just thought like, I have literally nothing to lose. I had finished this three year degree. I had no idea. I mean, I think there's so many people out there who go to school and are like, oh, wow, that did, like, that was great. I learned, but I don't know what I want to do. And it, you feel all this pressure because I was surrounded by these type A people who were, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be a this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm like, uh, am I going to be a collager? Like, what am I going to be a professional collager? <laughs> <Is this me? laughs> like, what am I going to do? So the minute it started, like life just immediately for me changed forever. The trajectory of my life changed forever. So unpaid internship, you're getting coffee. How did you prove yourself to obviously these very big personalities where I'm sure they're shakers and movers. How did you stand out? So I basically just did everything I could to make myself indispensable to the company. And at the time, I didn't really know what PR was. I thought the PR was event planning. Like, I was like, what is PR? Like, a piece. Like, what is that? Yeah. Am I doing a chandelier? Am I doing, like, a centerpiece? And because I'm Canadian and, like, we don't really have an entertainment PR right, industry. Right. But at the time, what Lizzie and Jonathan did really well is they represented brands and nightlife spaces mm -hmm. and they threw parties and they um, procured celebrities and influencers. At the time, it really wasn't influencers. It was like socialites and bold face industry names. And they did red carpet events. I mean, everything has changed so much since then. But at the time, that was a big industry. Nightlife was a big industry pre-social media. It's, it's changed so much now. But at the time, it, it was like this huge thing. So I was there at like 6 p.m. with the clipboard. I was getting coffee and lunch. I was doing everything I possibly could to make sure they knew that I wanted this more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Lizzie was filming a show on MTV called Power Girls. It was her and her four mm -hmm. girls um, who were these publicists kind of like ruling the roost of New York City. I mean, the show was like ridiculous. I mean, it sounds fun. I want to watch that. Yeah. I should find it in yeah. the archives. Like 2000 I like to think like I'm eight. a Power Girl. Yeah, MTV Power <laughs> Girls. And it was just like, it was this crazy, crazy time. And Jonathan, he is such an interesting personality. And at the time, he really, I feel like he would cringe if, he, if I said this to him now, but he taught me so much about New York and the industry and just dealing with all these big personalities. Because I would walk into restaurants like Nobu and I'd be so intimidated to mm -hmm. even be there. Like I just felt like everyone here knows that I'm a fraud, like that imposter syndrome, because going from Canada mm -hmm. to be suddenly sitting at dinner tables with like Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, I was like, this is mm -hmm. fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I was so annoying on Facebook at the time I was on Facebook. Like, you know, what's up, Canada? No, I was so <laughs> annoying. Meanwhile, I had a penny to my name and like no career, but I was doing what I could yeah. to make it work. And then two years into that partnership with Lizzie and Jonathan, things started to go awry for their partnership. And 
um, there was this moment where I felt like Lizzie and Jonathan were going to end. And I went to Jonathan and I said, listen, I really have learned a lot from you. I'd mm-hmm. like to continue working with you. So if you guys do split, I, I, I'm prepared to go with you. And that was another huge kind of aha moment in my life where we went from Lizzie Grubman, Jonathan Shebin PR to Command PR, which is the company that Jonathan had started in mm-hmm. 1999. And that... Yeah. You see these people now and you don't realize, wow, they've been in it. Yeah. You know, I, I know him as food god. Yeah. And, oh, I see him occasionally with Kim K and With stuff, the Kardashians, yeah. But, oh my gosh, it's not an overnight thing. No. They've been in the background doing things. And, and like, I think because of, like, the character that he's created and he's... And that, like, I support him for whatever it is. Like, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, like, he is a really good branding person because he really wanted to lean into food. He loves food. Mm-hmm. But at the time, he was, a he was like, a masterful, top-of-his-game New York City publicist. And so I would say in 2008, no, 2009, 2010, he started to get offers and interest to do a TV show based on our company, Command mm-hmm. PR. At the same time, we had met um, the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. Kim and Jonathan and I had become really close. And Kim was really interested in being the executive producer of the show. Wow. So, um, which was, again, like another, like, holy shit, we're mm-hmm. going to do a show. And I was so scared, like, how am I going to come off? Like, it was the beginning of reality TV when it wasn't so pervasive. It was, now everyone has a show. I mean, like, Strangers in the street. Everyone, everyone's like on a reality show, and no one thinks anything of it. But at the time, it was like, what are they? What are they going to say? How are they going to edit us? So we did this show. It was called Spin Crowd. And I have so many shows to binge after this. Yeah. Oh no, this I was great. like <laughs> Professor Peabody in the show. I wore like a suit and a bow tie. It was oh, like wow. it was total craziness. And the show was all about life behind the velvet rope of like mm-hmm. what we did for our brands. And each episode featured a celebrity. It, it, it was, and I say celebrity, like in quotation marks. And so we did that show and Jonathan got a taste for reality TV and like what that could be for him. And right after we did that show, it was very clear that Jonathan wanted to be a TV personality and actually like lean into that life. And I just felt more comfortable behind the camera. I felt more comfortable like building our agency. And that was kind of the splitting point for Jonathan and I and that Probably, I'm messing up the dates, but I think that happened around 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. so eight years ago. Wow. And doing PR and obviously PR and marketing and all of those things, all of those things have really morphed into one where there's very minimal separation. Yeah. And I'm sure during the time it was very exciting where, okay, you were in the circle, reality TV is everything. It's all good, right? But did you ever, like, did you think that, okay, this social media thing is coming. It's shifting. Was there a moment where, hey, we need to take next steps to change this up or did it stay traditional PR? I'm just so curious about that traditional PR world and like what it was like because I'm, I kind of only know this new world yeah. of YouTube, social media, totally. influencers, of course, reality TV, but really it's just Real Housewives and the Kardashians. That's the only thing I really know. Right. And like, I, you know, I think traditional PR is dead. Like mm-hmm. we should, it's, there's no, like you can't, t- 
take this kind of old formula of media and editors and celebrity and talent. Where and it's like, all separated. Where it's all and, separate. Like yeah. if you are upset about something and you have representation, are you going to call your representative and say, can you issue a statement? No, you're going to get on your vlog. You're going <laughs> to yeah. talk on your podcast. You're going to post on your Insta yeah. story. And so suddenly these gatekeepers are no longer gatekeepers. Like mm-hmm. if a fans are upset about something, you're able to, to identify something within seconds and then respond to it. So PR has just changed. Marketing has changed. I am, I love it. It's like those scary gatekeepers in the beginning of when I started my career who held all the power. Like there's been this major, um, come to Jesus for Mm -hmm. so many people who are able to now say, you know what? Like I have the power, I have the power to grow my brand, to speak to my fans directly, to, um, sell them products, to build a community. I I mean, it's, as you know, it's like the, the, like the world is your oyster. Mm -hmm. You can be anyone you want to be and still create an incredible brand. And I feel like I'm trying to look to people who've been in that industry now and understand the structure that was around it. Yeah. Cause as a one man band, one woman band, there's a lot of things that you just, when you're creative, you throw yourself into it and it's just chaos, chaos, you know, it's utter chaos. So for me, I've been almost doing a complete 180 of like, okay, Simon, tell me everything about PR and marketing and having employees. What was that like? How did you hire that first, you know, manager who you knew you could trust? Um, So it's been interesting to kind of observe both and learn because a lot of influencers, a lot of individuals don't know how to navigate the growth, which is a whole nother world, right? Which I think that world did a really good job with. Yeah, and there's there's this, moment where I think even with the Kardashians, you look at, and other influencers who've had kind of tremendous success, you see something like KK Beauty or Kylie Cosmetics, but that wasn't their first foray into beauty and that wasn't their first foray into owning their own brand. Like, it's so cliche, all these things that people tell you. And like, I heard them in my 20s and I was like, oh, stop this. Mm -hmm. Like, try as many things Um, as you can and fail as many times as you can. I mean, Mm -hmm. I wish in my early 20s I took bigger risks Mm -hmm. because every time I've done something and it has failed or I've made a mistake or there's been a huge setback, it it has made me so much stronger. Even with just launching my last business, Mm -hmm. Judy, before that I had another business that that, didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to be. And it's like every time you get better and better. So as you think about if you're an influencer or um, an aspiring influencer who's hoping to build their community, it's like make the mistake, hire yeah. the manager, build some structure around it, see that's what the works. Time to do it. You got do yeah. it now. I see so many people who are too scared to pivot mm-hmm. because they're scared they're going to lose what they've already already built, and you just have to lean in and make the mistake because what is the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. You know, and I think there's so many things you can learn, but like doing is just, it's, it's paramount. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Judy, because that was obviously, I'm sure a huge step for you entering the world of, I wouldn't say, I mean, essentially it's a, you would call it a startup, but it's also yeah. a proper oh. business where you're making money, but I'm sure you had. Oh, it's a startup the, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure you had the discussions of, okay, do we do 
angel investing? Do we go to a more institution? Do I fund this myself? So scary. There's so many things. And I'm sure you have a physical product, which in the world where software is eating everything, doing a physical product is almost more of a risk now. So I'm sure there was a lot of things going into that. So what was your first step with that? Obviously, you identified a need and the timing, Simon. Yes. Impeccable. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> had we known, it's like so we la- we launched six and a half, seven months ago, on January twenty seventh, and all of our kits came with N ninety five particle masks, and we had consulted with kind of these leading preparedness instructors mm-hmm. and managers around masks, and they were all for wildfire prevention, and then mm-hmm. suddenly two two months later, you can't find a mask anywhere in the world. I mean, it's. The timing was just extraordinary. Um, we had never even thought about pandemics. And really the genesis for Judy, well, there was two things. I was having an existential crisis. So I'm 36 years old. I've been doing, I guess you would call it PR. It's under the umbrella of PR. But what I really do, and many people, even my family, are like, Simon represents celebrities. I'm like, no, I don't. I do not represent mm-hmm. celebrities. I connect brands with celebrities. So when you see a Super Bowl commercial and you see a celebrity hawking shampoo, I am the person that connected Celebrity Y with a shampoo brand. Right. So I'm like the, for lack of a better word, we can call the a broker. Mm-hmm. So I'm helping all these big CPG brands work with talent. And I love it. It's like, I love celebrities. So I could, mm-hmm. I could ideate on casting all day long. Like love you're that. launching a skincare brand, let's find the face of it. Yeah. Um, but I did have this existential crisis where I thought, like, is this my calling? Like, mm. I I've have all these great relationships. I've built this community. Like, what can I be doing that has a bigger purpose? And while I'm this... I'm sure you wanted something for you, for me, too. For me, because I've yeah. spent 16 years building other brands, making other brands famous, mm. using the power of influence, using the power of celebrity. And I'm so grateful for my career and I'm going to continue to do it. And I still have a, a, you know, a flourishing business, but I needed something for me that I, I could go to bed at night saying, okay, yes, I have a profitable business, but I also have a business where I'm helping people and doing something more. And over the last five, six years, I have so many friends who've been in these emergency situations. So I have friends who've lost their homes in wildfires. I have friends who've, who've been in these terrifying kind of home fire situations mm-hmm like we call them domestic emergencies. And then I have friends who've been involved in hurricanes. All of them shared the same kind of common denominator, no preparedness, Mm -hmm. like no family evacuation plan, no evacuation plan to speak of. And they all describe these kind of moments of terror. And when I said, do you have an emergency kit? Do you have any plan? They were like, no, we've never even thought about it. And when they went on Amazon and when they searched the internet, there was no brand that spoke to them. So my co-founder and I said, why has this not been done? And I hate when people say this, like founders were like, it's a white space. Like, <laughs> like shut up with your white space. Cause like, I cannot, but there was this moment, this opportunity where we felt like we could create something and we could do it in a way that wasn't scary okay. and that we could quite honestly help people. And I know it sounds so silly and I'm the listener eye rolling when you're like, okay, can you stop with the helping? Yes, we're excited. We have a a great business, but it does every day when you hear from families across the country who say, I feel peace of mind. I feel safer. My, I, I know that my kids are happier because we are prepared. We're talking about family preparedness. That peace of mind is huge. 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 And like, I have, you know, I have friends in uh, LA and two weeks ago when there was the earthquake, I woke up to like 56 messages. Like we grabbed our Judy, we listened to you. We knew what to do. We stayed in our bed. We covered our heads Mm -hmm. during the earthquake. Like 
not only the thing about Judy is an emergency kit is great, but it's the, it raises the consciousness of the Mm -hmm. conversation. So because we're having this conversation right now about emergency planning, you may go home and think, okay, where's my fire extinguisher? And do I know how to operate it? If there was a fire, that's a good point. Yeah. I don't know how to operate a fire extinguisher. I don't. Where, I didn't even know where my fire extinguisher was. I was like, does, yeah, uh, does an apartment come with one? Like, that was my question. It has to, right? It's supposed to, but like so many rental apartments in Just New York don't. do not. Yeah. yeah. So is there, do you pull the, because I know there's that key. Is so that, it's the key. There's like maybe this whole. we can whole, have a learning opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yeah. There's like this whole, it's like you pull it, you shake it, and it goes up to down. Okay. So if you could see me visually, I could show you. But love it. If you Google it, the diagram yeah. is so simple. We have so it on. We're Judy's. always learning. Here yeah. On that creative. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so that was the genesis for it. We launched it. COVID hit, and you know it's been this kind of extraordinary experience um, where we've just been dealing with this kind of post-COVID world. And yes, obviously, an emergency kit is somewhat plays into pandemics, but. I think what it did for so many thousands and millions of Americans and people around the world is it made them feel suddenly like they were vulnerable. And we've always been vulnerable Mm -hmm. to to natural disasters and emergencies. But we do this thing like all things that we don't want to think about. We just put it to the side. And it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. It won't happen to me. Yeah. And if it does happen to me, there's nothing I can do to prepare for it. <laughs> so might as well embrace it. Totally. Let's like <laughs> lean. I am, I am so that person. Like yes. I'm like the last minute person who's like, oh, I do not want to yep. talk about something scary. Yep. And recently you guys have partnered with uh, Feeding America. Yep. To uh, talk about that a little bit. So thank you for asking about that. Yeah. That is a really... It's an initiative that we were really proud. We're a small company. Like, I don't want to misrepresent. It's a startup. So for us to make a kind of a contribution and a commitment at that level was scary as a Mm -hmm. company because for every kit that we're selling, for every mover, which is our go bag, and um, the safe, we're donating an eight-piece emergency kit to a family in need. And the genesis for that, it actually started with social media. So every day we would receive a few comments from families around the country. Most of these families were in vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. So coastal communities. And these people were saying, we love your product. We've been seeing it on Instagram. We've been seeing it promoted everywhere, but we can't afford it. And in fact, we live in a flooding zone or we live in a wildfire zone or we've been in a wildfire. Mm -hmm. And we, my Josh and I, my co-founder kept having these conversations like, Yes, it's great we made a donation. Yes, it's great we did this. But like, what can we do that's actionable for our team every day to show that the commitment is to help families prepare regardless of their financial financial uh, means? So this is a commitment we made. We're doing it in partnership with Feeding America. Um, and it's something that we're, you know, to, to, be, to be raw and honest with you, like humbled mm-hmm. and um, just so grateful that we have the financial ability to make this commitment and it's and it's been incredible so far that's great what what has been your biggest challenge going into this from you know you're used to like you said building other people's brands being somewhat of a middleman to now being hey this is all up to you this is your thing good luck oh my god (laughs) so you had the idea what was that step number two okay so idea hits then there's like the test phase where you tell your friends about it you tell Mm -hmm you know, the smartest people in your Rolodex. You're like, what do you think of this idea? And then you've you've got the naysayers. I think one of the things you learn when you have an idea, and anyone out there who's listening who's had an idea and told a person like this, you know what I'm saying. 
there are people out there who are dream killers. They don't mean to be. Maybe they do mean to be, but most of the people don't. They are going to point out all the negatives in your business idea or in your big dream. And I think ideas in their infancy are so fragile that you need to be really careful of who you, who you share it with. You need to be, you need to share it with someone who's going to support you because the idea that we first had at first, it wasn't even Judy. It was like, we thought it was going to be dehydrated food, Hmm. like shelf life food that would stay in your basement for 30 years. We thought that we tested it for two months. We thought this food will be delicious. This will be like Pedialyte. Like you're going to have it on your way late to a meeting. You're going to have one of like our freeze dried bars. That is a bad idea. No one wants that idea. And we got from that idea four months later to Judy, which was an emergency preparedness system and kit that included freeze dried elements. But the first. Among many other things. Among any other things. But like the first idea is just the the springboard. Like don't get discouraged. It's going to change. If you, Mm -hmm. if you found a passion spot, keep going. So that was the kind of the initial phase. The scariest part for me the part that like kept me up at night was fundraising. Yeah. And there is like this illusion because I have this marketing background and I have access to celebrities that like, Oh, you're fine. You're Rolodex. I, you need to have the balls to reach out to people and Mm -hmm. ask them to make an investment in your company. And you were talking about imposter syndrome earlier. That's when that pops up. Oh, am I important enough for this? Totally. Am I, you know, you start, Oh, you start faking yourself out. And I'm also like, Am I speaking Chinese right now? Yeah. Like I'm raising five million on a convertible. Like I'm like what the KPIs am- no, and no, the no, cat. Totally. And- yeah. And you you kind of self you self doubt yourself, and then you go through the process. And fundraising for any of the people who fundraised before, you know, doing a friends and family round is one thing, but when you start to deal with venture capitalists, it is a whole other wheelhouse, and it makes you so tough. It's like, it's such a kick in the ass, mm-hmm. but it makes your idea stronger. It makes your business stronger. It makes your network stronger. It's like boot camp and you, you dread it. Like <laughs> I met with someone last week who's like, I love fundraising. I was like, well, you're not well. <laughs> yeah. Who are you? Who are you? Um, but it really, it, 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 it kind of sets your business up for a certain type of success. And I think there's different types of fundraising. I certainly think that in this era right now, we're already seeing a course correction in the type of money mm-hmm. that you're, you're looking to raise. And investors are more curious about actually making money. Making money. <laughs> you know? You can't just burn through venture capital money mm-hmm. and hope that you're, you know, it will eventually be profitable. So we've been really careful. We also, just in terms of our strategy, really focused on friend, family and friends mm-hmm. and high net worth individuals who believed in our vision. Right versus that traditional model. I advise a lot of startups. I'm an advisor on a ton of startups and I give them counsel, but I'm like, you're going to know, like what I'm saying to you is going to make sense to you in six months when you're done your raise. You're going to be like, oh yeah, I understood what you were saying when everyone has their mumbo jumbo. I think that venture, like traditional um, VCs are great for certain businesses. For a majority of them, they are not at the Mm -hmm. seed phase. Hmm. Like what venture capitalists are telling you when you when they write that big check to you, especially in the beginning and in the infancy of your brand, is like we want to see growth at all costs. Mm-hmm. And as a startup, you're still figuring out your customer and your product, and you may not want that stress. So if you can raise money in a smaller way through friends and family, 
and that don't doesn't put you on that immediate like steroid growth phase where you can just figure out what is working and what point. is not. Yeah. I think that again, it's a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. So I hate to make blank blanket statements, but fundraising is scary for everyone. Um, and I'll say that my co-founder, one of the reasons why we're so we work so well together is he is an absolutely brilliant fundraiser. I have learned so much from him. And when I'm on the calls with him, I'm like, this business you're talking about sounds <laughs> mighty sounds exciting. Um, and he's great. And he um, and finding a co-founder, some people do really well on their own. I really wanted a co-founder. Your strengths yep. and weaknesses. And guess what? It's very lonely, as you know, starting a business or starting an enterprise, having the person to get on the phone at like one in the morning when you mm-hmm. can't sleep to be like, did we make the right decision? Did we find the right manufacturer? And walk away from the cliff. Yeah. Everything will yeah. be okay. I think yeah. that's been half the conversations is, listen, we know this is a need. Because yep. when you're so in it, there are moments where you want to throw it all away. A hundred percent. Go back to the, the, the drawing board. Mm-hmm. But then you, it helps to have that other person to remind you of the need, to remind you, hey, we're just, we're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep your eyes on that. We'll get totally. there. Totally. And you can't burden that with your employees, even yeah. if you have one employee, even if it's the intern. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. know, if you're starting small, like you can't. Or any of your stakeholders. So like if you have a manufacturer or a software developer, like you need confidence. The vendors, you know, the the stakeholders in your business don't need to hear about your insecurities mm-hmm. about your business. Someone does. Mm-hmm. So find that someone <laughs> if it's not a co founder, maybe it's your a therapist. Poor mom too. Um, my my mom is just she hears everything. Totally. <laughs> and it's kind of, but it's so special to have it. Yeah. Um, so if it's not a co-founder, I think it is, it could be a mom or a best friend, like a sounding board. Um, because the, the wins are so exciting to share and, but the losses need to be, you know, someone needs to, to hear that conversation too. And that's, I think there's a lot of parallel to content creation. If you have your audience too, when I was purely vlogging and I was trying to figure out my life, I would use my audience as a sounding board to the degree that it was almost like the detriment to my videos to where, so when you said that, I was like, oh, I feel like that's important too when you're developing an audience and community. You wanna be transparent, cause that's half of it. But at the same time, do they wanna hear you complaining about your terrible New York apartment every single vlog? Right, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. There's like, there needs to be this like fine line where you're like, am exactly. I dominating this? Is this yeah. too negative? Yeah. yeah. Hey guys, I found another mouse today. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all, all things to think about. And so, okay. So you raised money. So we raised it. We raised, um, a friends and family round, a seed round as they call it. And we are closing our series a right now. Correct. So it's been, so it like, it's only seven months old, but it feels like I've had the business for 17 years. That's insane. Yeah. Seven months. Seven months. We're seven months old. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. It's been like such a gratifying and um, just like a tremendous experience. Mm-hmm. And it's so personal. Mm-hmm. Like Judy has suddenly become like my other child. Um, Where did Judy come from? Where did the name come from? Okay. So it's a great question. It's actually like the most asked question. Like who yeah. the F is Judy? So we <laughs> wanted a name that everyone would remember. And we felt like it needed to be like a name name. Right. So we went through all these names and Judy, we all had someone 
who knew of a person who was a type A, mm-hmm. hyper organized, like our great aunt Judy. I have or, an aunt Judy. Okay, who's like yeah. just weirdly organized <laughs> and like 20 minutes early. Like we all had a Judy persona in our life. Yeah. So that is how That's Judy funny. came to be. Like it was really just a persona of this type A organized person. Yeah. Are you type A or are you, how would you describe yourself? I, it's like, I feel like I'm that delusional person who's like, I'm not type A. And then like the employees who are like, uh, psychopath, (laughs) (laughs) you are a Looney Tune type A. (laughs) I'm type A with, with certain things in my life. So you guys have your content game. You have the branding game. Um, Has the manufacturing been a challenge with everything going on? It actually hasn't. We, um, because I'm the type A Looney Tune that now we've diagnosed. I sourced so many different manufacturers in the beginning. So we made sure there was never a supply chain issue. Um, And luckily, the type of products we're making, there are so many different places to go to make them. So you have backups. We have backups backups and we have backups on the backups. And um, so the manufacturing has not been the issue. I think the thing that we are constantly making sure we get right is just the messaging Mm -hmm. and the branding because one of the things you can do when you're selling an emergency kit is you don't want to scare people. Mm. So like, what is the fine line to motivate someone to make Mm -hmm. that decision? Like how can you talk about hurricanes? And I mean, the the reality is this, we just spoke to a data scientist this morning. We had this big call. Mm -hmm. Storms are getting worse. This is not, this is fact. Um, They will continue to get worse over the next 50 to a hundred years. And the way that we live is going to change fundamentally and in, in our generation. And so people right now out there who are not prepared are going to need some sort of physical product and they're also going to need an education. How can we convey that in an Instagram video or in a brand message without scaring the shit out of them? Mm-hmm. Without using, because I don't want to grow a brand. I don't want to play into the pandemic. I don't, I don't want to play into the pandemic. Or sorry, into the... Yeah. <laughs> both. <laughs> both, actually, both. <laughs> I don't want to play into that, into that messaging. You know, we talk about security companies all the time. Like Ring, Ring's Instagram and their kind of their marketing assets shows would-be burglars breaking into your home. Is that something that we can play into in terms of storms? Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel right for our brand right now. Right. It feels too scary, but we constantly have to do an audit and say, what is Judy and what feels off-brand for Judy? Mm-hmm. You know, just because something triggers a sale doesn't mean it's right for Judy. Right. So what has been the messaging that you kind of like, what's an example of an Instagram quote or maybe a line on your website, people who... Uh, you know, or maybe building a product now, they're onto that branding move. Can you, yeah. can you give any advice or, or real life examples of something that played played well with, with the audience? It's like, this will ring true to anyone out there who started a brand, but like everything you think you know about your brand, actually like mm-hmm. you, you think you know it, but like launch it. Launch it and stop worrying about your font. Mm-hmm. I beg you to stop Reach. worrying about your, your wow. color palette. I s- just yep. stop it. Yeah. It's a ridiculous waste <laughs> of time. Like you're literally talking about like a sans serif font. I'm like, no one cares. Yeah. Like yeah. launch, like that is not just what matters. Start. And like, should it, the packaging be blue? Oh, but blue evokes a feeling of like all of that nonsense <laughs> is is it is important when you launch and, but you know, what's really important finding a customer first, finding someone that is like hearing your messaging and actually wanting your product and you filling a void in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that we spent a lot of time. I made this mistake. I was worrying about hand crank radios. I did like a survey of like 3,000 people and a hand crank radio. Do they want it to be a hand crank or is it solar pad? Like I almost did like a, like a thesis on it. I'm like, why am I? And then I, in retrospect, I'm like, no one cares. Like they're happy with the solar power yeah. hand crank radio. And they're also happy with the hand crank radio. Like yeah. it's the same thing. So um, I think we all kind of get lost in the details yeah. of when you start a business, but I encourage you just to like, you know, done is better than perfect and launch it and go beta and figure out what's working and what's not. Did you do all of that research for each thing that was in the kit? Yes. Wow. So how long did that take? I mean, it what was all year. the, wow. So we, I felt like I, so a year before the launch, a year before the launch, okay. I felt like we all felt like in order for me to be talking about emergency preparedness, I needed to actually become an emergency preparedness expert. Mm -hmm. I needed to meet with everyone. I needed to speak to people at FEMA. I needed to speak to people at the Red Cross. I needed to understand the blind spots around why 60% of Americans are not prepared for natural disasters mm -hmm. or home emergencies. Like that stat to me is shocking. Yeah. It was the genesis for why we started Judy. And if you ask the everyday person, like, what do you do you know, when there is a home fire in your kitchen, what's the first, like everyone answers wrong. Like there are so many blind spots around basic preparedness. And what we know is that this conversation that we're having right now, if it resonates for someone, it can quite literally change mm -hmm. their life and save their, save life, their life in yeah. the event of an emergency. And it sounds hokey. I hear you, but <laughs> it's not. And, and that is kind of the motivator and the driving force and the North star for Judy. Mm -hmm. There are so many things, like having my content hat on. You said, do you have a podcast? So you guys started a podcast? We're starting a podcast okay. called Emergency Contact. Yes. Because just speaking to you right now, I'm like, oh, all of the leading experts on safety and all yeah. of these things. Yeah. I would listen to that every totally. single week. Oh, I'm so fat. We have this incredible woman named Soraya Sutherland. She is our director of education. We do these like preparedness lights. Like think of like big little lies, like wine, cheese, and moms who are like, wow. we want to lean into preparedness. It's goes on to like three in the morning. I'm like, I ladies, we gotta wrap this party up. <laughs> they have so many questions because once you get into it, you yeah. start thinking about, do I have an evacuation drill for the second story of my home? Do mm -hmm. my kids know how to open the screen door on the second story of their home if there was a fire and they couldn't go downstairs? Like once you start going through the motions, you start to feel empowered. Like, wait a minute, I'm actually building out an emergency plan for my kids so they know exactly what to do mm -hmm. um and there's a sense of confidence that comes with that yeah Ooh, i can't is it live yet the podcast okay. so no the podcast we're starting to air on september 8th and it's, okay. it's interesting we feature a star if you will and their real life emergency contact and we quiz them on preparedness information love that okay so we do i like, think this will yeah. be out by the time okay, that's great. out so everyone make sure to check out yeah. that that's very exciting thank you yes, yes. wow so Life now. So I'm sure you've turned the corner of, okay, I, I've built something that is mine. I'm sure you're excited for the future, all of the content, all of the future products. What has you the most excited about kind of this, this corner that you've turned? You're working for yourself. You're making the moves. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're still doing 
your, you know, your brokering as well. Yeah. So like, so my, I have a partner in my, my marketing company, Command Entertainment Group. So that is, that is a business that will never go anywhere. I I love doing it. Mm -hmm. It, Again, it goes back down to like the fundamentals of loving celebrity Mm -hmm. and just loving the influence um, you can have over a brand Mm -hmm. using, using, you know, the power of the right deal, finding those like kind of once in a million partnerships are the goal where you can not only help a brand, but also align a celebrity with something that makes sense for mm-hmm. what they stand for. So that's amazing. And I, I would say next steps in terms of what I'm most excited for is growing Judy. We have so many things coming out from a product perspective and just from a brand perspective, the Feeding America partnership, you know, we launched it a month ago. It's just in the kind of its beginning iteration. So watching that kind of unfold over the next six mm-hmm. months and we're also working on um, creating kind of a virtual, um, almost like a home preparedness audit where mm. if you're a parent right now, you've probably spent hundreds of dollars, if not mm. thousands, baby proofing your home. Well, imagine disaster proofing your home, having a specialist, a Judy specialist come into your home virtually mm. and do an audit of all the things you're vulnerable to from things in uh, underneath your cupboard to your evacuation plan to actually like designing the specs of your home and how to exit your home in the event of an emergency. So we're working on that. I mean, we have all these things in the funnel. So the next six months to a year are going to be jam-packed with Judy. Love that. Okay, last 10, 15 minutes. Let's talk about, because we have a lot of business, we have the people in the business of influencer marketing, all of those things, but then a a lot of creators. So for the brands listening, but also the creators listening, what makes that perfect partnership as we put our PR hat back on. I I have a ton of experience just as a creator working with brands like Intel, Adobe, Best Buy, those types of, you know, brands. I imagine once you get to the level of the Kim Kardashians, obviously that's a a different level, but I'm sure a lot of the same themes ring true. You want the influencer to feel like they're talking from a place of like a genuine place you want results as a brand you know what makes that perfect integration between a brand and an influencer well i'm going to speak on the brand side first because that is where i have the most experience Mm -hmm. brands one of the challenges when you are identifying the right brand partner is that someone on the brand team a marketer on the brand side falls in love with a celebrity and what ends up happening or an influencer Mm -hmm. and they approach said influencer and there is potential lukewarm interest, but they have the right budget. It meets the criteria for the influencer and they end up engaging with an influencer who is lukewarm on the product. In some cases, they don't actually use the product. This happens a lot in the celebrity space because the budgets are much bigger. Mm-hmm. So when you have a five, $600,000 or a multi-million dollar deal on the table, oftentimes you're encouraged by your management and the powers that be the stakeholders within your brand. And by brand, I mean the celebrity brand to participate in the deal. There is nothing worse. And you see it all the time when you when you're watching like, I don't know, the Today Show and you see a celebrity talking about a brand partnership that feels painful. And it doesn't even need to be a product that makes someone, you know, there are categories. I mean, we've done categories that are risky, whether it's, you know, it can be an alcoholic beverage, it can be um, something in the injectable space, you know, it can be a a weight loss product. It could be anything you want, but 
you know when you have someone who actually uses a product, like the actual testimonial when someone uses something, when it's made their life better and they mm-hmm. can tell that real story, that is the type of brand partnership you're looking for. And on the, on the brand side, you should be doing everything you can during that courting phase where you're negotiating a deal and kind uh, of send them the product, make sure they love it, do all the things. Yeah. And have they spoken about it? Have they spoken um, ill will towards the category in general? Do a thorough audit of that. That's a good point too. Hop on that Twitter search. Make sure there's no dirt that people can pull up. You know, like we <laughs> did a deal. We were in the process of doing a deal with a celebrity in the coffee space. And that celebrity five years ago on their Twitter said they hate caffeine. They have never... <laughs> They, they have always hated caffeine. They hate how it makes them feel. Yeah. We were then entering into a large partnership with a coffee brand. So obviously during those diligence, we were like, okay. Let me know how you feel about caffeine five years later. Because <laughs> what we know now with, and, not, and you know, this is a whole other conversation, but cancel culture and, and, you know, finding things from your past, anything that you have said, regardless of the level of star you're, you're coming out with, you're, you know, a micro influencer or you're a macro or you're, a, you know, an actual traditional celebrity, quote unquote, it is going to come to the surface and you're responsible for those words. So I think you really need as a brand marketer, you need to be, you know, looking into the, the celebrities and the influencers you're engaging with. And at the same time, as an influencer, you cannot be partnering with brands that don't have a good reputation. And I think you, as an influencer and a, and a celebrity, you have to do your diligence. And I wouldn't rely solely on your manager or your management mm-hmm. to do that yes, diligence. Yes. I think you should do your own diligence and make sure, have they done anything that has been offensive? Are there stories on Fast Company that relate to like their workplace culture? Mm-hmm. Is that something, because now- <laughs> So many things to think. I mean, that. Yeah. literally I had a partnership with Away for about two years and hello when it's yeah Yeah. hello exactly and my final deal was in the in the middle of all that and you know it was pretty good money and that was one of the first big conversations it's like oh okay this might not be the right time right and you can start with delaying it indefinitely and then ultimately what I've learned is you're not like you are a free person even if you sign the contract, hopefully if you have a good lawyer, you don't have to do something yeah. if the circumstances aren't Yeah. Right. You know, like this is the U.S. of A. Like just say no yeah. if things are going to, because I've had those experiences of products not working, feeling like I'm stuck, feeling like I owe yeah. my management, right? You start feeling kind of guilty. Oh my God, they've already done so much work with oh, yeah. this. Yeah, but of then course. your entire credibility is on the line. So if you take that step, you're not helping them either. And I think you, I mean, not to get too detailed, but I think as an influencer and celebrity, your lawyers, your manager should draft morals clause language into every contract. I know in the last year, our morals clause language used to be like a blurb and now it's a full page to allow if much more about right if something like the away situation comes up where suddenly you posting on the day that there is a cover story on away's toxic workplace environment you can't post that. Mm-hmm. You can't be promoting away on the day that story hits, or maybe you can't be pr- promoting it ever. ever. Yeah. Like it, it, yeah. you owe that to your community. And suddenly you're in this situation where you're like, well, I'm legally bound to post this mm-hmm. and I don't know how to do it. So I think you look back and say, okay, what are the learnings? What can I include in, in my contract? But yeah, I think 
You need to find authentic partnerships. And I would say that some influencers focus too much on um, kind of the upfront um, fee. Mm -hmm. Like I look at brand building certainly from an influencer perspective and even a celebrity perspective as like a TikTok toe effect. So if you have this incredible brand, this like kind of blue chip brand wanting to do a partnership with you, but the money is not right. I think that you should, you know, obviously speak to your stakeholders, but it could be a great from an optics perspective Mm -hmm. to align yourself with a brand at that level. Don't think about the money. Understand that buyers in this space what we look for is we look for influencers and celebrities who are actively participating in endorsement, commercial endorsement opportunities and are doing so in a way that is really positive. And their audience responds well. So you may do a deal for, I'm just giving you examples, $500, but that deal will then attract the attention of three other brands who are going to pay you $2,700. I think don't get stuck in the weeds on deals that feel low in compensation. Mm-hmm. Understand that this is a game. This is all a marketing play as well. And especially with when you have that goal of what you want to be and how you want to look. And, you know, it's like you said, it's not always a money play very early on when I started all this, I love interviewing people, obviously. Um, and li- I love just industry behind the scenes entertainment yep and very early on there was a deal with AT&T to basically uh make a video but also interview people on the red carpet for a a vulture festival and you would think okay AT&T huge company they should just be like handing over the dough right right? but like you said it was kind of like you it wasn't as good as you'd expect and I had that moment of like this is a lot of work I'm making a recap video on top of being the personality on top of doing xyz but like you said, like fast forward, you know, a year later, they used me again. It was more money than other brands started looking at things. And it was you're suddenly with AT&T. Exactly. And yep. it was just really good momentum. And it was especially in the beginning. Um, it it fit my brand. Right. And so I think you have to think about all of those things. And just like you're uh, we talk a lot about uh, working for free, not working for free. And because it's, it's such a scandalous thing nowadays. But like you said, the unpaid internship literally set you up for everything that you changed have my today. life. It changed, changed your my life. life. Yeah. And so and if I, you I have was not to paid sleep, for a year. Wow. And if and you like, have to I sleep on ha- the couch, yeah. if you, you know, yeah. like everything I have now, I can attribute to honestly volunteering my yep. time. One, you know, <laughs> could not agree with you more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know there's people out there that say, Sarah, must be easy for you to say. You had a roof over your head. You yes. had free food for your parents. And I completely agree. But it's almost like I'm, I'm telling you a cheat code. It's like a cheat code for life. It's a life hack. You know? So if you can just figure out how to pay for your food, how to pay for the roof over your head for those six months, yeah, for that year, yeah. I'm telling you. And you're going to want to break. I wanted to break yeah. three times where I was like, yeah. I can't live here. I can't afford this. Yeah. You know, what am I going to do with my life? This is not working. It wasn't like I suddenly became the intern and suddenly everyone was like, we're so happy to have this like right. weird, annoying right. Canadian intern. <laughs> they were like, who is this freak? Why is he talking with his hands? Yep. And what are we going to do with him? Yep. Yeah. And so 
as we wrap things up, anything you would like to say to someone out there who's trying to live their best creative life, they're searching, maybe they want to build a product, maybe they want to build a brand, maybe they want to do more content, they want to move to New York, they want to move to LA, they want to be a part of this, this world. I, I think I would say this to anyone, whether it's an influencer or, um, or a would-be entrepreneur, just start doing, mm-hmm. just start doing. You know, there's so many incredible ideas that are existing on a Google Doc somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like you need to pick up the phone and don't get overwhelmed by, but I don't have a manufacturer. Just keep calling and phoning and you will like, you will be amazed at how much you can do with the perseverance, whether you need to put it into a calendar or whether you need like a life coach who's a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to find someone who keeps you kind of responsible and on the track, like just start doing um, because you will look back and I, I regret I'm 36 now. I regret not doing more in my 20s because mm-hmm. I was scared of taking those risks. Mm-hmm. And you don't have responsibilities in your 20s. That's what right. I, I keep get st- like I get stuck in the trap of wait, okay, friends back home, they're like buying houses, right. they're starting, do I need, I'm burning my money on rent, what right. am I doing? But yeah. I have to remind myself, you love New York, Yeah. you're building your business, yeah. you're building your brand, chill. You chill. don't You don't need five bedrooms right now. No. Why do you, why do you feel you like you need that? You barely need one, yeah, exactly. you're good, yeah. We're, we're making it work, right? Totally. But yeah, um, Epic, Simon, thank you so much for being on. All of your links will be in the show notes below, but for people who are just listening and they're lazy, can you tell the people where to find you and Judy? So my Instagram is uh, Simon Huck. Uh, Judy's is Ready Set Judy. And yeah, that's it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Simon. Uh, make sure everyone you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen that creative life. And until next Monday, thank you for listening.